There's a fiddle ready for love. I can jump over the moon up above. There's a fiddle and ready for love. Haven't a worry, haven't a care. Feel like a feather that floats on air. There's a fiddle and ready Hello. for love. Long time no see, and I have a very, very bad excuse, meaning there's nothing I can say that can explain adequately why this episode took so long to come out, and there's nothing I can say that can adequately express my my uh, regret that it took so long. The truth is, I bought a Dell computer, uh, and I got scammed into an Alienware. So this is a public service announcement. Do not buy Alienware. Do not buy Alienware. Do not buy Alienware. All the nerds out there are going, this idiot bought an Alienware? Well, yeah, I did. Because I, when I was growing up, it was, you know, the, the best gaming computer slash video producing computer you could get. And uh, I didn't realize, because I don't really pay much attention to this stuff, that Alienware was acquired by Dell. And then they drove the brand into the ground and... Uh, well, long story short, $500 later, I'm sitting with a completely new PC. Not completely, they salvaged some of the parts from the Alienware, but because it was it was a proprietary device, they couldn't salvage all of it. Uh, then, this week, my Solid State, which contains all of my podcasting files, on which there are three interviews uh, waiting to drop, it also bricked. So I had to take that to data recovery, and I'm sure you can hear the stress in my voice, and you don't need that because you're not here to get stressed out by my problems. Anyway, I'm happy to bring you this uh, this newest interview, and it was one of our only IRL discoveries. We uh, George met somebody at some kind of rich person party, I guess. Um, now that he's married, he goes to these things, and uh, pulled him in and said, hey, like, you sound, you seem like an interesting fellow, and, ah, well, I won't spoil it. There's a little bit of an intro on, on the actual episode here, but, yes, I'm sorry you had to wait so damn long for this show. Um, shouldn't happen again, at least not like this. I mean, I'm, I, I literally lost, uh, an entire audiobook that I recorded. It's not good. It's not good. So, long story short, don't buy Dell. Don't buy Alienware. Don't let your friends buy Dell or Alienware. Uh, don't let your grandma buy Dell or Alienware. Don't let anyone you know buy Dell or Alienware because it's a scam. They give you this two-year warranty where they'll fix anything wrong. Well, all they're doing is refurbishing crappy parts, putting them in a new box and calling it a new PC and sending it out. I had two motherboards fail on me, one inside of warranty and one outside of warranty, and I had to wait one entire month to have my PC back online and in my home working. <sighs> anyway. <sighs> I mean, can you imagine that, like, the level of frustration of, like, me not understanding that this is a scam, being on the phone with Indian people trying to explain to me that this isn't a scam, them shipping me a box, which I then put the PC into, ship off to Texas, wait a month to get it fixed, it comes back and it fails within a few weeks. I can't get anything done. All of my side hustles have been put on complete hold because of this. I should be suing Dell for this. <sighs> anyway, so I took the thing. I packed the thing up. I was, just, I was like, I called the local computer shop because I wanted to talk to an American nerd. And I said, hey, 
have you ever had this happen? And they go, oh yeah, it happens all the time. Alienwares fail all the time now. And they were trying basically to explain to me how the scam worked on the phone without calling me an idiot directly. And of course, I feel stupid because, you know, I got suckered in by a brand like a dummy. I was like, oh, I can't fail. It's an Alienware. Oh, I would, I'd rather have a system that's completely perfectly designed for functionality as opposed to, you know, some Frankenstein computer put together by the local computer nerds. I should have gone to the local computer nerds. I should have done it to begin with. I should have walked into that store and said, I need a computer that's powerful enough to do audio, video editing, and some gaming, and I need you to do it on the cheap, and it has to have cool lights. And I could have gotten something ten times better than a freaking Alienware. <laughs> But no, instead, I had to buy the the brand and uh, like a, like an idiot, and then five hundred dollars to get new parts to put in the box, a new case, everything because you know nothing fits because it's all proprietary, new cooling system, everything. And here I am, finally able to sit down and record this thing. And then my SSD dies with all of my podcasting data, all of my work on it. Just you know, not the ones with the with the Windows installation or the or the you know the extra data for memes or something, I don't know. The one that has everything I do on it dies. So I have to go back to the computer nerds around the corner, thank God it's only a five minute drive, put it in their hands and say, help me, help me save everything, everything that I've lost because I plugged this into an Alienware motherboard and didn't expect it to vaporize. Like an idiot. <sighs> <laughs> I guess this is probably pretty funny to listen to, but you know what? I'm mad. I'm pissed off. This shouldn't happen. Customer service should not be this way. What kind of a planet are we living on? I don't... Okay, so the good news is if I get my drive back, I've got at least two more episodes ready to go. I just have to edit them, clean them up a little bit, put them out. One, which is a mini episode with Daniel, but you know, it's good content. And it's going to come out, but jeez louise, guys, do not fall for branding. <laughs> it's bad. I mean, it's really bad. And this is the dumbest I've felt in a long time. In fact, just even talking about this and telling you about it, I feel embarrassed. Like, oh, big brain Darren running his history podcast. And, you know, he's so smart. He, he bought an Alienware. <laughs> Lord love you. <laughs> anyway, so... I'll let you get to the interview. That's about enough of that. But I, it's been a long time since I've been able to talk into a mic, and I freaking missed it. I freaking missed it. Hope you guys are having a great summer. Please enjoy the interview. We'll be coming back at you with more content after this one. Thank you for waiting. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. And we have a very special episode for you today. Indeed, we've invited uh, a friend of the uh, the historical society of We Talk About Dead People to come on and share with us his particular knowledge of a particular company. George, are you there? I am here. Oh, perfect. So, um, <clears throat> George, would you please explain how we came into contact with this fine fellow with the magnificent beard? Well, I was at a, a recent uh, event uh, sort of a con a weekend conference type thing, and there was a an individual there who not only had a magnificent beard and mustache, but also an impeccable tweed suit. 
and fortunately, I was sort of building up the nerve to go speak to someone with a larger mustache than me. But fortunately, my wife beat me to it and went and met him and then introduced me. So I didn't have to go through the normal sort of masculine procedure of approaching somebody with a larger mustache. There, there, there are distinct rituals you have to go through with these sorts of things. See, this is great. You're in a, you're in a beautiful position now where you can use your wife as a proxy to get us amazing guests on the show. I don't have that advantage yet, but you know, watch out. Anyway, so <clears throat> I would like to introduce to everybody Lucas Clausen, who has decided to join us on We Talk About Dead People for a discussion about the DuPont family and their history. And I'm gonna be honest, I uh I don't know anything about this. I did a little research like last night, <laughs> just so I could be uh not completely clueless on this. But basically, um, Lucas is going to share with us what he knows about the history of the DuPont company and what he does. So, Lucas, welcome to We Talk About Dead People. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're ha we're really glad to have you here. It's been a while since we've done a, an official interview on this show. And I'm excited because it's particular. We have our best guests on this show have a really, really narrow scope. They've focused on something very, very intensely and very, very deeply. And uh, typically, it's not... Our best guests are, are cover topics that we don't typically talk about. Like, it's one thing to talk about, oh my gosh, let's talk about World War II again. Let's talk about the Civil War again. But when you get to something this narrow, that's when it gets really exciting because you get to hear all of these very um, interesting and very, um, uh, you might say, almost personal stories from history. So, Lucas, what is it that you do exactly? I am site historian for Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And Hagley Museum and Library is where the DuPont Company started in 1802. We are a 235-acre property on the Brandywine River just outside of Wilmington, Delaware, uh, which you can come and see the ruins of the DuPont powder mills from the 19th century. You can see their ancestral home from 1802. You can explore their decorative gardens, workers' homes. All sorts of stuff. It's kind of a, of a day-long adventure if you want to, to venture your way up to northern Delaware. So it's it's the remains of something out there? The... It, yeah, we, we have a, it, it's, it's a, a huge property that uh, takes up about a mile and a half of the Brandywine River where there was an explosives factory. So whenever you come to take a tour, you see the ruins of quite a lot of buildings, but you also see buildings that are still intact and, and still machinery that operates that uh, that's from the 19th century. So you can see a 1870s machine shop run off of water power. You can see some of the machinery that was part of the powder yards in the 19th century operate. You can see the homes. Uh, there's a Sunday school that's on the property that uh, the DuPont company sponsored in 1816. So you can come to uh, to see that. And if you have kids, they can come and write with quill pens and take a lesson like you would have had at the school in 1823. That's crazy. George, have you been out there? I actually haven't. I, even though I've been living, you know, next door to Delaware most of my life, I actually had never heard of uh, the Hagley Museum until I met uh, Lucas last month. Well, it's, it's, it sounds interesting. I mean, like probably someplace I'd want to go if I got out there, though I say that the last, when we interviewed, um, when we interviewed the uh, Peshigo Fire Museum uh, tour guide, um, I said, oh, I'll get out there because I literally live in Wisconsin now. But it was it's four and a half hours and I still <laughs> I still haven't got out there. 
But uh, Lucas, could you tell us a little bit about the background of the, the DuPont family? The DuPont family started in France. That's their, their, their background is there, that they made the decision to come to the United States in 1799. They had lived through quite a lot. The uh, paterfamilis was a fellow named Pierre Samuel DuPont de Namur, who uh, was a member of what's called the physiocratic movement in France. So these were economic, political, educational thinkers. Uh, his big shtick was about the, the economy and manufacturing. He loved uh, talking about countries that could manufacture things within their own borders and free labor systems and free education systems, stuff like that. He became known in the salons of Paris in the 1770s, came to the attention of people like Louis XVI. And uh, another person important to the story is a fellow named Antoine Laurent Lavoisier, who uh, most people know as the father of modern chemistry, the person who uh, did a lot of research on oxygen and how it works and conflagration and fires, but also about the, the scientific method, being able to replicate your experiments, document everything you do. So once the French Revolution got going, the uh, DuPont family came into the crosshairs pretty quickly of, of the revolutionaries because of this association with Louis XVI, with Lavoisier. Lavoisier ended up uh, getting his head cut off pretty quickly uh, because he had the incredible poor fortune of being someone who collected rent on behalf of the crown. And uh, the, the DuPont family and Lavoisier's had a pretty close connection. But uh, the DuPonts ended up getting off the hook. The uh, person who accused them printing and publishing shop, which they found had been busted up um, in Paris. And so uh, what do you do? They decide to get out of France, not to uh, escape getting their heads cut off, but because Europe was in economic chaos at that point, that they, they, they wanted to try something new. They knew that France was not the place to do it. So uh, one of the people who looms large in the story is uh, none other than Thomas Jefferson, who the DuPont family met when he was consul to France during the American Revolution that uh, they found that uh, Jefferson and DuPont de Nemours had a lot in common. These these guys struck up a lifelong friendship that lasted till DuPont de Nemours' death in 1817. So these cats talked about absolutely everything from geopolitics to economics to the color of the grass in their yards to their own stool. It's really crazy to see a letter from Thomas Jefferson talking about his stool. But uh, <laughs> not to be crass in saying that, but it's the, the kind of a measure of showing you how close of a connection these two had. But uh, Jefferson didn't cause them to come to the United States to help grease the gears of progress. He encouraged them to come and say, look, you're going to find a welcome place in the U.S. if you decide to relocate here. So they made the decision, got on the boat, came over and started several businesses that they didn't come here with the intention of starting an explosives factory. So they had a prospectus of several things that they wanted to do. And uh, they all failed one after the other. So they wanted to try stuff like dry goods, printing and publishing, uh, things like a shipping of people, mails, things like that, that one after the other, all these businesses flopped. The thing that stuck was black powder. So getting into explosives. So that's something that they started uh, here in Delaware in 1802 and off to the races they went. That is and so If I'm not I'm mistaken, so sorry, or if I'm not mistaken, uh, the uh, Monsieur Le DuPont was a Huguenot, right? He was. Which I guess. Trust in the new world with their uh, sort of on again, off again relationship with the Ancien Regime. A lot of Huguenots had sort of looked to the new world as a potential place to decamp to. Yeah, they 
that that's a big thing. Also, Dupont de Nemours' oldest son, uh, uh, who was uh, consul general to Charleston, South Carolina, in the 1790s, Victor Marie Dupont, that uh, he was uh, boots on the ground, uh, giving real time feedback as well about what's going on in the United States and how well or not he felt that they could do if they decided to to make the leap and come over uh, to North America. You know, so they've they've got a lot of uh, a lot of deep connections, but also a lot of real time feedback. You know, I mean, so it's it's uh, it's not that uh, they just arbitrarily made the decision. This is something that they thought about pretty thoroughly for several years before finally saying, yes, this is what we want to do. Let's pull the trigger and go. George, could I ask you a question? <clears throat> yes. For our, our listeners who may be ignorant, uh, <clears throat> I mean me, what is a Huguenot? <laughs> uh Huguenot is France's indigenous Protestant movement. Um by the it was fairly not a large sort of public issue by the time we're talking about, but during the 1500s and 1600s, there were a series of devastating civil wars in France um between Catholic and Huguenot factions, because there was a always a distinct minority, but at times a very influential minority among the nobility who wanted a Protestant monarchy in France um, as opposed to a Catholic one. And so there was through the 1500s and 1600s, there were wars and massacres, and it was the war, French wars of religion were very, uh, very brutal. Um, by the time you got into the 1700s, it wasn't sort of frequently a public issue, sort of a status quo had developed that there were certain cities that the Huguenots would more or less restrict their public Protestantism to, and there were certain cities that you were not to do Protestant things in, and certain noble families that were going to stay Protestant, but there was no question by the eight by the 18th century of the monarchy becoming Protestant or anything like that. But that had been a big issue, and a lot of Huguenots ended up at various points when things weren't going their way. Um, fleeing France, a group actually tried to set up a new Protestant French colony in Brazil, which did not last very long. Um but they were uh, their sort of biggest stronghold was actually on the Atlantic coast on La Rochelle. So the new world was always something that Huguenots kind of had their eye on if things went especially badly. And so it's sort of ironic that it was after the fall of the Ancien Regime when uh, when you would think you would have you that, uh, you know, there would no longer be a need to sort of flee to the new world that finally this what probably is the most. At least in the modern world most uh, prominent and important Huguenot family in the New World ends up leaving after the fall of the Catholic monarchy, not in the 300 years before. Well, they, they were afraid it was going to happen again, maybe? Well, to, to be fair to the DuPont family on this issue, they traced a Huguenot lineage, but they declared themselves in the 1780s, 90s, more spiritual deists. That with DuPont did a more, a lot of his perspective on this was that uh, religion is what leads to a lot of uh, warfare, bloodshed unnecessarily in the larger world. So it's not that he was against it. He was more uh, for kind of a tempered way of approaching it or more of a, a non-denominational, non-sectarian kind of way of approaching it. So um, in coming to the United States, the family practiced that pretty heavily that you didn't see any family members come out for any sort of uh, uh, kind of religious partisanship until the 1850s, that there were some uh, makes. Yeah. Makes sense with Jefferson mm -hmm. being a friend mm -hmm. since that the DS thing is very much his. 
perspective as well. And so the, the DuPont family in uh, starting their, their black powder factory here, uh, they, they were not against uh, their, their various worker uh, communities starting their own religious groups at the DuPont company ended up sponsoring four churches that came out of the Sunday school on the property. So it was a, an Episcopalian a Methodist, a, a Roman Catholic and a, 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 a Let's see, Episcopalian, Roman Catholic, Presbyterian, uh, Methodist. And uh, although the, the head of the company was, uh, he declared himself an avowed agnostic, he had no problem cutting a check to build one of the churches for these groups. And it wasn't so much that he had any kind of dedication to religion as he saw the value of something like a church to the communities that are, are around this factory. That uh, the, the family themselves have a have a pretty interesting relationship with 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 religion, uh, especially since some of them end up as Swedenborgians. They come out as uh, Episcopalians. Uh, they're kind of all over the map, and uh, where they where they ended up settling was Episcopalian, and uh, some Presbyterian uh, later in the nineteenth and early twentieth centuries. I just want to very... stop you there for a second to say <laughs> we uh, we actually did a long program on Swedenborg. Mm, uh, sure. What was that about two years ago? So yeah, yeah. I can see the gears turning in Aaron's head. Yeah, I was about to get very excited. <laughs> what are the, the the groups I've been working with here in Wilmington? Is the the local Swedenborgian church that traces their lineage back to the uh, the Dupont family that they helped get this church started and actually underwrote its construction of the physical building in the the, the uh, 1850s. But then uh, one of the later family members, whenever they widened the main road in Wilmington, they got the DuPont company to completely dismantle this church, move it uh, like 80 feet to get it out of the way of the road and put it all back together again. So they've been uh, doing a lot of uh, kind of heritage work and uh, have, have had me to, to work with them to help them root a lot of this out, but do some public talks about it to raise awareness for the church and some preservation work they need done. But it's it's an interesting story. It's one that I honestly didn't know a lot about until this this group reached out to us to find out about their origins. And at that point I've been like Swedenborgian, who the heck is that? You know, and you know, did the research to figure it out. That's so interesting. <clears throat> I, when you talk, when you begin to talk about, um, I don't know if the word elite is the right word, but when you begin to talk about elite families and you usually find that there's religion tied up in there in a big way. And a lot of the time they end up in a very, unusual place and so it doesn't really surprise me that they ended up with uh, Swedenborgianism but uh oh for one branch of the family uh, for a good portion of the 19th century that uh, that they tend to take a, a pretty thoughtful in, in my opinion they, they tend to take a pretty thoughtful view of, of the world around them one of the things that uh, comes out of kind of this physiocratic ideal that they bring with them to America is uh, like this deep appreciation of the natural world, the deep appreciation of uh, like natural and acute awareness that this is an infinite resource or this is not an infinite resource, you know, that we can't squander this. We've got to make sure that we take care of the Brandywine River, make sure that we don't call all of the willow trees in the Delaware Valley to make black powder but then also an appreciation of like the flora and fauna that some of the uh, the daughters of uh, E.I. DuPont, who founded the company, spent a lot of time out on the Brandywine River drawing bugs and birds. And uh, they had a deer park and a turtle pen behind the house, things like that. But uh, it also spreads out to the people who work for them that they're uh, pretty, uh, pretty good about uh, letting these people 
come and go as they please, have a, a free labor situation, a community where these folks can, can come and go be a part of it, in part because of this kind of deeper um, ideals that they bring with them, uh, kind of the early modern enlightenment, if you will, that they bring with them. Uh, I kind of hate that term because it doesn't tell you anything, but you know, a lot of the, the, the stuff that it, that they bring with them from France that kind of comes out of this physiocratic, a lot of their, their larger spiritual ideals that they bring with them, you know, they always want to do right by people. But then the basic economic bit of this, too, is that they're asking the folks who work for them to do something incredibly dangerous. And it's highly skilled work and it's highly technical work. So they don't want to lose labor whenever people are here. They don't want somebody to, to get mad and say, you know, to heck with you. I'm going to take what I know and go somewhere else, especially after they spent five years to train you. But then also, if people are afraid to work in an explosives factory, they're not going to work in an explosives factory. So how do you find people to work for you? So part of the larger deal is that they had no problem sponsoring churches, that they set up the Sunday school so that the workers, and this is goes back to like the English traditional Sunday school, uh, where you're uh, teaching workers to read, write, cipher on Sundays, the only day that they're not working. So they're, they're putting up an education system for their workers that they're subsidizing housing, that they subsidize a dry goods store. They set up uh, company gardens. That way the folks who work here have access to food, uh, quality food, you know, things like that. You know, that there is kind of a paternalistic bit to it, but then there's also a bit of them genuinely wanting to do right by the people who work for them because they are asking them to do something incredibly dangerous. And they bring, I think, kind of a unique uh, perspective in that there are, in addition to their awareness of someone doing incredibly something incredibly dangerous, they're also aware that these people are working to make them money and they want to try to give a little bit back. So it's like, well, you know, you're, you're making me money. I should, I have the obligation to do something back for you to help you out in some way because you are working for me and for my benefit. So it's uh, they, they want it to be more of a symbiotic relationship, which surprised me that they actually pull it off in the 19th century. Yeah. We've, we've oh, discussed no. that many times on this show. Like, the old elite used to have a different philosophy about their people that were working for them. You know, the modern day, it's like, okay, so you're basically a glorified wage slave in an Amazon suit, you know, like putting boxes on the line. Um, and back in the day, you know, uh, George has mentioned this many times. Uh, there was a, there was almost an expectation that the, the wealthy would contribute toward the public good. Nowadays, we don't really have that. So it's interesting. It's so interesting to hear this. We, um, I, I recently, not recently, it was at least a year ago. I went to the, uh, Pabst family mansion in Milwaukee and the way the building was set up, it was just so that the servants and the, uh, the occupants had, um, I wouldn't say equal, but they had at least what you were describing a symbiotic relationship where everything was set up so that it would be, uh, easy for the servants to do their work and also live their lives at the same time. And it was so shocking to walk into a building and look around and see all of the rooms literally arranged to make a relationship between um, worker and boss that was kind of idealistic and almost happy in a way. Now, make no mistake with the DuPonts, they're... They're, they're not inviting these people into their home. They're not eating supper with them. You know, they're not uh, taking them on, on jury rides in the carriage. But there is this definitely this obligation that they feel toward the people who work for them. There's a 
part of what helped me think about this in a big way is uh, a, a writer named Bryant Simon, who was at a Temple University in Philly, who uh, did a lot of uh, research and writing on American textile mills. So uh, my uh, background before I came to Delaware was I did a lot of research on American textiles, uh, mining, coal mining, stuff like that. I'm a native of Southern Appalachian Mountains. So, you know, you kind of see the worst of American business. So I came here fully prepared to absolutely hate DuPont. And uh, didn't, uh, you know, got my mind changed a little bit after digging into some of this. But but Bryant Simon had a lot to say about the, some of these businesses in America where you get the first generation who starts it. They're they're not elite yet, you know, that they're they're not poor. You know, they're not people who are on the bottom rung, but they're people who are trying to get this thing started. And they're working with the people who work for them. Right. You know, so they're kind of in the trenches with these folks, you know, that they're kind of sharing the joys and sorrows a little more in real time than if you're necessarily separated from it. So you get the first generation that there's a close relationship between management and labor. You get the next generation. It's a little less so because, you know, it's like the children of the people who started the factory. Those The, the children are working there. You know, they know the people who are, are working for them, that they're still in the same communities, that they're close together. Then you get the third generation, fourth generation. That's when they build a mansion on the hill. That's whenever they have the estate in the Poconos, you know, and not anywhere close to to where they're they're actually doing this work. And that's when you see a lot of labor strife come up. There's whenever the people who are running the factory are not, or the people who own the factory aren't part of running the factory, and they're they're not seeing the people who work there on a day to day basis. And I think with the uh, the Dupont family, this is something that lasts a lot longer because they never left the Brandywine. That uh, even to this day, a lot of them still live right here on the Brandywine. So um, it, it was. It's been interesting to me in the longer scope to meet a lot of people who worked for the Dupont Company uh, all the way up through the 1980s, 1990s, and they talked about how much they appreciated having this direct access to Dupont family members uh, because uh, they felt like the company genuinely appreciated them because these family members would make it a point to talk to them. They would me- remember them when their kids were born. You know, like give them a day off, you know, or if it was an especially hot day, you know, invite them over to let the kids swim in their pool kind of a thing. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing, but I think a lot of it has to do with the DuPont family being so closely intertwined with the company for so long that they never get to a point where they separate themselves out from it. Like you see with a lot of other American businesses where they eventually get to the point where, you know, you're hiring proxy managers instead of you doing it yourself. You know, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, my uh, my family background is primarily in Pennsylvania coal mining, so I'm I'm well I'm well aware of the uh, the fraught history of labor relations in the Northeast. So I I actually didn't know that the Newponts were kind of an exception in many ways to the general tendency in the 19th century, which was a uh, not a great relationship between uh, between labor and capital. So it's that's very interesting to me. But it makes sense what you were saying about sort of that connection to the Brandywine Valley and how sort of both the family and the industry itself were really tethered to the same place in a way that they weren't with a lot of uh, a lot of the industry of the 18th or 19th century. Yeah, they they never lost a perspective of where they came from, you know, and even to this day, a lot of uh, family members I talk with are are aware of um of, of kind of this. So, so Hagley, you know, we do have their ancestral home. This is where they all came from. And, uh, they gather here at, at least twice a year for, for family get togethers. And so it's, it's interesting whenever they come here to talk with them to see the older members of the family, they, they want to engage 
like me and other staff members here at Hagley with this history, but then they push the younger family members to say, hey, go talk to these people, look at this stuff, research this. This is where we came from. You know, look at look at this long line. This is the kind of the debt you owe, because if it weren't for all of this, you wouldn't be where you are now. You know, and I, I find that an interesting perspective that some of the modern family members carry into uh, carry into uh, today, you know, and in our interactions with them and how they choose to engage this history through this museum, through this library, through everything that's here. And what is the what is the name of the museum you work at again? Hagley Museum and Library. H-A-G-L-E-Y. Okay. And it's, um, is it specific to this family or to the area or? Um... It is. It is where the company started. So it's, uh, it's the, the focus is on the uh, American innovation and manufacturing through the lens of DuPont. And that was the, the idea from the setup. We became a museum in 1957 and the uh, the idea of that was to talk about American business and industry using DuPont as a case study because we have the factory and we have the home. That uh, This came out of a, a larger initiative in the mid-1950s for the DuPont company's sesquicentennial and the company itself thinking about, well, we, we're, we're, we're 150 years old. How do we commemorate that? And so the, the idea is to try to set up a museum to uh, talk about all the great and wonderful things that American – industry and business has done specifically the DuPont company uh, that in, in the mid 19th century to, uh, to kind of show Americans that no business isn't a bad thing. Industry isn't a bad thing. Here's the great and wonderful stuff. And here's why, and here's how we did it. But whenever you come here today, it's a, it's a similar message uh, that we do talk uh, kind of in a wider sense about American business, economic, uh, industrial history, but it's focused pretty narrowly on the DuPont company since that's what you're seeing when you're here. That's interesting. We we actually just our last episode was specifically about the Industrial Revolution. Um, I I don't know if you've ever heard the name Ned Ludd before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered a couple him. of times. Yeah, interesting fellow. Um, though I think I, I kind of I do it sort of like this um, this sort of uh, American industry, you know, positive. Like we built all this stuff. We can be proud of it. I always like that, even though I, I still in the back of my head have a little bit of sympathy for Ned Ludd, where I'm like, I get it, brother. I get it. Like you're a cog in a machine and or whatever. Um, but uh, I, I do like hearing that that uh, celebration of American industry. It 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 uh, sets the fire in the old patriotism in me that somehow hasn't been destroyed yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a couple of specific things I did want to talk about. But before we get there, I was wondering if you could just sort of walk us through a little bit more here because you know there were a lot of companies founded in the 19th century that aren't around today and so i wonder if you could just sort of walk us through a little bit of the later history of the duponts and how their their company maintained such an important role and its success throughout decades when a lot of companies rose and fell so the the, the company starts with with specifically black powder so it's, it's explosives and the constituent ingredients of black powder, which are saltpeter, charcoal, and sulfur. The company's first sales product wasn't actually finished black powder. It was refined saltpeter. It's one of the constituent ingredients. And and the reason why... Not a, not a super pleasant thing to make either. I remember like doing it in my garage when I was 10 and I'd read a book on how to make gunpowder. Oh, yeah. It, it's it's pretty disgusting. <laughs> with uh, with making refined saltpeter, you get these huge bags of uh, raw material from India. And you put it in big boilers. You know, it's a pretty 
terrible, uh, smelly, hot, awful process. But it's a it's an important product because it's used for so much stuff. It's used in manufacture of explosives, but then also it's used to cure meats. It's used as a fertilizer for a, a bunch of things in the 19th century. So the company uh, doesn't want to be a one trick pony, if you will. So whenever you're you're making black powder, you're not just making black powder. You're doing some of this other stuff too. It's also important to say that black powder is not a monolithic product. It's not a one size fits all sort of thing. That you've got the explosive powders and propellant powders. And explosive powders are what you use for mining, construction, you know, blowing out rocks, that sort of thing. And, and the uh, propellant powders are the ones that you use in firearms. So artillery fuses that sort and then of thing. Even among even among propellant powders, you have different finenesses mm-hmm. for different applications. I I shoot a little bit of black powder stuff myself, so I I, I know your my finer powder for the uh, the pan versus the coarser powder for the main charge, and yeah, more coarse for cannons. But yeah, uh, I would imagine so, yeah. But but to answer your question about the longevity, uh, the the reason to get into that is that the company's constantly thinking about new products. That knowing that uh, black powder is not a one size fits all product, what can we do to 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 make a new product? You know, who needs this stuff? So uh, when they set up the company in 1802, it's a, a bit of play in search of an author because you've got a lot of imports from Europe that are, are filling the American market for for black powder. Where they feel that they can do something better than anyone else is in refining raw materials because E.I. DuPont has that chemistry background. He studied with Lavoisier in France, but then also that they can do it at scale, that there's no large scale manufacturer in the United States. So once they get things going, get a product line going, then it's a lot of uh, thought about, well, who who uses black powder? How can we change this, reconfigure a little bit? So a big example of this is uh, what's called mammoth powder. So as you get uh, uh, large-scale artillery in the 1840s, 1850s, people like Thomas Rodman with the uh, U.S. Army Ordnance Corps and then John Dahlgren with the U.S. Navy Ordnance Corps, you need to get larger grain powder so that you don't blow up large cannons. So uh, they start thinking about black powder that uh, has grains the size of golf balls or even the softballs. That way you can take part in this process. So they're part of this larger R&D with the U.S. military, but they've also been doing it on their own and thinking about, well, how can we change this product? So they take out a lot of patents for ways to make larger grain black powder or black powder with a different uh, formulation. Also, a big thing for them is in the 1850s, uh, figuring out how to use sodium nitrate to replace potassium nitrate for for explosive powders rather than propellant powders. And why that's important is that uh, Sodium nitrate is a lot more hygroscopic than uh, potassium nitrate. It absorbs water at a quicker rate, so you couldn't make black powder out of it until DuPont figured out the process. And so that's important because a majority of their customers were the mining areas of Pennsylvania or extraction in the upper Midwest. So you can use a cheaper – so sodium nitrate is a lot cheaper than potassium nitrate. You get it out of South America instead of India, so you don't have to pay nearly as much for shipping. You don't have to pay nearly as much to buy it. But this is this constant push for for kind of innovation. So they're always thinking of new products, new ways of doing things. So fast forward to the, the 20th century, you you get a company that's come through this long history of constantly pushing what they're doing, changing how they do things to figure out better ways to do things, better products, to and, and figuring out new markets. They made the transition into a smokeless powder, which is a completely different thing from black powder. Black powder is a completely physical process. It's the three ingredients just mashed together under a lot of pressure. When you get into smokeless powder, uh, 
kind of crudely, all you're doing is dissolving cotton and nitric or sulfuric acid and, and refining that down. So once they get into that, they're able to, to open up new markets for propellants and explosives. And then they start thinking about, well, we're building this production capacity. What else can we do with it? And so that's when they get into things like plastics, into uh, fabricoid, which is like synthetic leather and fabric coatings. They get into paints and varnishes, things that use cellulose chemistry, you know, the same sorts of stuff. So they're thinking about all these new products. And that's when they expand their product line from explosives and propellants into materials. And then from the R&D that comes out of that, they're thinking about, well, what, what else can we come up with? And they come up with stuff like cellophane, Teflon, nylon, all these products that you've heard of. But the, the longevity of this company, I think, rests on the fact that they're, they're not hesitant to do the R&D work to figure out new products, but they're also not hesitant to get rid of things that don't work. So if they try something that doesn't work, they shut it off. If something does work, then they keep it. So what the DuPont company does now is absolutely nothing like what it did 50 years ago, which is nothing to what it did 100 years ago, which looks absolutely further nothing like it did in 1802 when the company started. So it's a, a company that constantly changes, but that's a, a long process that goes back to the very beginning of uh, constant change, constant uh, innovation to think up new things, new ways of doing things, new people to buy their stuff, new stuff to sell to people. So I don't know if this is going to be interesting to anyone but me, but it's my show. So as someone who's very, uh, very into home projects and like made trying to make gunpowder in my garage and stuff like that, I was curious about, so where are they sourcing like their sulfur and their charcoal? Are they making the charcoal on site? The only raw ingredient that they sourced domestically was charcoal and that they preferred to use willow wood. It's a light, tight grain wood that they could easily get in the Brandywine Valley, then the Delaware Valley, and then later southeast Pennsylvania, uh, Maryland, uh, kind of regionally within about three hours of, of here. The uh, sulfur came out of Mediterranean Europe, so mostly Sicily, uh, but usually uh, like France, uh, Italy. The uh, saltpeter almost exclusively came from India. And uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, just natural deposits that occur there that uh, make it a lot more efficient to get it from India than to try to make it domestically, that making saltpeter is an incredibly difficult and energy-intensive, labor-intensive, time-consuming process. So you can... And it smells terrible. And it smells terrible. It is disgusting. <laughs> I mean, because you're, you're digging this stuff up, and you've, you've got to boil it, uh, and you, uh, you put it in great big vats and then boil it. And so whenever you do, well, some of the... Uh, some of the uh, kind of contaminants float to the top, some go to the bottom. So you've got to scoop it off and you've got to pour the stuff out into a big pan and then rake it until it crystallizes. So it, it's salt. It's just nitrated salt. So it's a it's a disgusting process. I, uh, I actually. Could you take us more through this timeline of change? Like the uh, you, you were mentioning they're they're constantly adapting to basically what the world needs and trying to provide it. Um, so they start, did they start in munitions and then move into something else? So they, they, and, and, uh, let me take a, another step in answering your question then into, uh, what did DuPont make and who bought it? So DuPont, uh, was part of a, of a larger American industry self-study in 1860 to figure out who bought explosives and propellants. And, uh, the industry then figured out that 80% of all output in DuPont's numbers fall along these lines went to the mining and construction industry. 15% of entire industry output went to, uh, 
uh, stuff like hunters, sporting powders. So these are people who uh, who, who hunt, target shoot, stuff like that. Only 5% of total industry output went to the government. And by the government, that means all aspects of government. So that's the Navy, the Army, the Revenue Cutter Service, the, the Lighthouse Service, the uh, Life Saving Service, the Indian Bureaus, everybody. So uh, munitions is not a big thing. That a majority of their customers are, are mining areas. So DuPont's primary customers were the Anthracite region of Pennsylvania and then a little later ore extraction in, in the upper Midwest. And so DuPont gets into a uh, – they, they get into the black powder business at a good time because Americans start to move west. Right. So you this this whole westward expansion is a big part of the story that uh, coal becomes king because what do steamships eat? You know, what do trains eat? How do people heat their homes in an increasingly urbanized society? So coal was huge. And a majority of DuPont's products went to the anthracite region of Pennsylvania to supply that need for coal. So they're they're in this at a really good time whenever the U.S. is, is kind of getting getting on track for that. So that's a majority of who always bought DuPont products. And so once you make the transition over to uh, nitrocellulose, it's uh, not the government who buys this stuff for munitions. It's mostly uh, them making dynamite for uh, use in doing the same sorts of things, so like clearing rocks or uh, they ended up working quite a bit with uh, local agricultural extensions to show people how they could uh, irrigate, you know, blow out dishes, stuff like that. One of the, my favorite uh, DuPont pamphlets from 1912 is called Farming with Dynamite, which uh, tells you how to, to, to blow out the blow out ditches, get rid of stumps and rocks in your fields, you know, that sort of thing. Munitions is uh, an interesting question because it's, uh, again, not the bread and butter of what DuPont did. The thing to keep in mind with the 19th century is the U.S. government had a standing policy to keep a very small army and navy that uh, in 1860, when the American Civil War starts, or uh, in 1860, or just before when the American Civil War starts the next year, the U.S. Army is only 16,000 men spread across the entire continent of North America. And the Navy's not that far behind in, in how small it is. So the government uh, does, it's, it's not a consistent customer. So the government would show up and order, say, 50,000 pounds of powder and then not show up to order again for three or four years. So DuPont could not rely on government orders. Uh, so you get into a wartime footing. It's it's not that they're making money because the government needs stuff and they need it yesterday. And their uh, regulations for what they want and how they pay for it are a lot more strict than you deal with on the civilian market. So they're not getting paid a lot for the work that they do, even in wartime. So a part of uh, DuPont's uh, MO during uh, wartime is to get the war over with. That way you can get back to making money in the civilian market. It's always the civilian market is always more lucrative. And so that's the sort of trajectory is but bigger and bigger emphasis on the civilian market as time goes on. Oh, absolutely. You know, because that, that's who buys the stuff, you know, and they've got a lot more free cash you know, floating around that they're going to use. You know that the DuPont always took that uh, took that uh, approach to things. I uh, had a discussion a few years ago with a person who uh, was was pretty well connected with the company, and I threw out some of these ideas to them, and then the research I had done to see what they had to think about it, and uh, felt vindicated when this person said that in the eighties, nineties, the company philosophy was always that they never minded selling to the government, but they never wanted to be in a position where they had to depend upon the government for survival. And I found that that's been the company's kind of unspoken thing from the 19th century all the way into the 20th. 
and I think that that's part of what's helped them last so long is that they're not so tied to the ups and downs of, of what's going on with the U.S. government, that whenever you're tied to the wider economy, you're, you're far better off. And so uh, with, with getting into uh, products like nylon, for example, that ends up being one of the biggest boons for the company uh, because they realize that there's a whole lot of women in this world who want nylon stockings, especially once mm-hmm. they introduce it and they realize that that's the thing. An example of that comes in uh, 1944. So the DuPont company was part of the Manhattan Project. That if it weren't for DuPont, the United States could not have had uh, fissile materials for either the atomic bombs dropped on Japan or any of the testing that happened later on. Um, so one of the company executives uh, was asked in 1944, they the said the, a government official asked them, they said, I bet you're looking forward to getting this war over with and doing well with uh, with this plutonium business. And the response is, no, we're looking forward to getting this war over with so we can go back in the nylon. Hmm. You know, that realization that there's far more women who want nylon stockings than there ever will be people who want fissile materials. And that that's something that will be far more lucrative in the grand scheme of things. And they were right. You know, that's where the company uh, made its money is in things like nylon, neoprene, Teflon, not in production of. It's really interesting because sort of I'm thinking of the sort of I was trying to think of a parallel sort of company uh, like DuPont for my own my own background being Prussian. I was thinking of a company that's sort of synonymous is Krupp Steel, mm-hmm. and they start out making all sorts of stuff. But over time. They just end up making more and more of their production goes into cannons and they sort of get very, very narrow instead. And sort of seems like the DuPont's kind of the opposite where they start with the black powder and then really branch out to the point that, like you said, war is less profitable for them than peace. Whereas with Krupp, every war wars were good times for Krupp because almost all their uh, manufacturing capability at a certain point was artillery. Mm-hmm. They were still doing some other stuff like they made the top of the Chrysler building, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh over time, things like kitchen utensils that were, they'd been making in the beginning got phased out to put more production into artillery. So it seems like sort of opposite uh, trajectory that a lot of companies in Europe went. Well, yeah, you know, and it, it, a lot of people want to equate DuPont with uh, companies in the, uh, the 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 so-called military-industrial complex of post-World War II. And DuPont is not a Raytheon. You know, DuPont is not a McDonnell Douglas. And DuPont never wanted to be that that's something that they were adamant about throughout the early 20th century and after World War II is that then they never wanted to be so in bed with the government that that was their bread and butter. And uh, a lot of that comes from this realization that the government is not going to be nearly as good or consistent of a customer as the civilian market, but then also uh, just how much, uh, especially once you get into the 20th century, the DuPont family members took a harder, uh, more conservative turn uh, politically, and they they didn't want to be involved with the government and in, in, in any way, and a lot of that comes out of uh, like the Great Depression and uh, the Roosevelt administration's uh, policies toward American business that they turned further and further away, particularly from the then Democratic Party, because of that. So they they already were were not inclined to be heavily involved with the government, but they were even less so, you know, once you once you get into the the twenties and thirties. And that's something that carries through World War II and afterwards and, and trying to keep your distance from a, a lot of government contracting just because they, they don't they don't see government as a good guarantor of the longevity of American business and particularly their business. Uh, yeah, that's real. That's very interesting you say that, because I was thinking that there 
we were saying about how the government's not a, a great sort of consistent thing to rely on there. But I mean, I mean, when you bring up something like Raytheon, you, the government can be, but it just requires a very different sort of corporate philosophy and infrastructure um, that involves, you know, a massive amount of, uh, well, I'll, I'll just wear my politics on my sleeve here, say corruption and graft in order to have a steady, consistent sort of reliance on the government as a company. You've got to be very ingrained in the political system. You've got to be making the uh, the political lobbying efforts and stuff. And of course, that's what I'm not ashamed to say. That's what Raytheon does. Uh, they, they're they very well ingrained in making sure the government money flows. And it's interesting that such a sort of prominent company like DuPont kind of didn't want to get in that game where they become a, a sort of subsidiary of specifically government contracts, because a lot of companies went the other way and without government contracts would not exist. Right. And that's... Uh... It's also important to say that we're also, uh, after World War II, kind of in a state of almost consistent warfare and militarization, you know, that you get World War II and then you get the ramping up of the Cold War. So you have a completely different philosophy from the government, I think, toward especially military materials, whereas before that point, you don't order a whole lot. But then from 1945 on, that's a constant source uh, that, that you need this stuff constantly. And so you do get a lot of companies that realize they can cash in. And I think you're right that they use their lobbies to get further and further ingrained and and turn it into, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much like a free market capitalist thing as you get people who are in there, you know, greasing the gears of progress, so to speak, and shaking hands, kissing babies, doing all that stuff to make sure that the government looks your way when it's time. And then you get this entire industry built that does nothing but service the government. And not just in providing munitions and military materials, but a lot of these companies uh, do everything from toilet paper to F-16 fighters. You know, if you look into to a lot of what they do and how they do it. And that's something that uh, that, du that DuPont tried to stay on the edge of at all times because they, they never wanted to be in that position because they were well aware that uh, that they, they, they took the long view that the government can always change its mind. And when it changes its mind, it changes its mind hard. You know, so if they decide they don't like you, they don't like you in a big way. That the a lot of Dupont's uh, uh, as an example of this uh, in in 1907, Dupont came under uh, Sherman Antitrust, and they were uh, broken up in 1911. That the government uh, realized that Dupont was the biggest game in town in the U.S. and made them split up into three companies. So it was Atlas, Hercules, and Dupont. So uh, a couple of years later, you have this thing called the Great War happen. And uh, which is all fine, well, and good until it becomes America's war. Then the United States government is spontaneously defecates because it doesn't have everything it needs to conduct a war. And so they're coming to companies like DuPont saying, well, we told you you were too big to fail, but we would like for you to bring these other guys back in the fold because, uh, well, we need all this stuff and you're the one who can do it. And they don't have the technical capacity. And DuPont's response is like, wait a minute, I thought you said that monopolies were bad. I thought you said that concentration in an industry was bad. You know, what are you talking about here? This is this is not what you were telling us. It becomes an incredibly fraught thing between DuPont and the U.S. government that in 1917, uh, whenever the U.S. declared war on the central powers on April 6th, it took from April until December for DuPont to negotiate contracts with the U.S. government just because of what a fraught uh, relationship they had and all of this argument about what DuPont was going to do and how it was going to do it because the smaller operators in the U.S. just didn't have the capacity or the technical expertise to produce what was needed to carry on a war like that.
you know, so that's that's kind of an interesting thing to throw into this mix too. Is that the 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 pont felt like they had been treated roughly by the government at several points throughout American history, but that was one of the things that they always pointed back to was this 1911 breakup, uh, plus some other uh, interactions they had with the government over uh, controlling interest they had in General Motors that 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 the government came after Dupont several times uh, for for antitrust, and then that really peeved a lot of the people higher up the food chain, you know, in part because they thought, well, you know, you, you tell us we're too big to fail. We're trying to make concentration to streamline industry, make products cheaper, make this stuff more accessible to the American public. And the government's saying, no, you're too big to fail. You're you're a trust. You know, we need healthy competition among smaller businesses. And they're like, well, you know, where where do you stop here? And particularly after World War II, that's the perspective they take. It's like, well, you know, you're consolidating industry to get what you want. How is it bad that we own General Motors? You know, how is it bad that we had a concentration in the American explosives munitions industry? Yeah, it's interesting sort of once again thinking of this in the context of that longevity and continued success of DuPont as opposed to other companies. Because I'm just thinking about, so I'm probably not surprised longtime listeners of the show to know I'm a firearms enthusiast and companies which have had a long history of primarily doing business with governments their sort of price to value on their products and also availability absolutely sucks. Companies that have had a long history of emphasizing the civilian market have products which for the money are better, they are more available, cheaper, as opposed to companies which have primarily dealt with governments. Production is never where they want it to be. Things are always on back order. Uh, prices are always way higher than they should be. Uh, ammunition calibers, which are which have primarily been designed for use by governments, like FN 5.7 by Fabrique Nationale, so expensive for what it is. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Companies that primarily do business with governments, they make products which are two three times what a comparable quality product from a com a company which has always emphasized civilian marketing makes and it's just, it's it's amazing to me that, yeah these companies if it wasn't for government contracts would never be able to exist with their business practices in the actual sort of marketplace well i, I just for the listeners i didn't die and fade away from the podcast forever i was just so interested in what these two were talking about um, I'd like to, I'd like to actually clarify, uh, Lucas, um, early on, earlier on, you used the word, uh, conservative. Mm -hmm. So you said DuPont was becoming more conservative. You said that was around, uh, what time? That, that begins in the, the late 1920s. And then especially, uh, around the time of the stock market crash and the bank failures. Right. So the, when you use the word conservative, what exactly do you mean specifically? I mean a, uh, and th and that's a good question. Thank you for asking me to to clarify that. That by by that I mean a conservative with a little c, in that it's more of a of an outlook of uh, like free labor, free market, less government intervention, less uh, less uh, uh, you know more of of businesses being able to control their own destiny rather than being dictated uh, what they are and aren't going to do by government regulation. So that's that's that was how they kind of framed all of this up. Um, an example of that comes in uh, prohibition. That the uh, the Dupont family members got pretty heavily involved in uh, anti-prohibition efforts, 
in part because they felt that uh, that by restricting the sale of alcohol in the United States, you kill off a, a pretty lucrative segment of American business and an important uh, an important segment of American business that they uh, actually got involved with a group called the Association Against the Prohibition Amendment to, to uh, had what they called the Beer for Prosperity campaign, where they made a uh, which is fantastic. I love the posters that go with this. But they uh, they made a pretty sophisticated economic argument that by killing breweries, you're eliminating jobs, you're eliminating money flow into a community because it's not just about people buying booze. It's about the people who work there and they in turn go and spending their money in the community. If you eliminate this business, then what are these people going to do? And they felt that uh, the Volstead Act was something that was completely arbitrary on the government's part. And that was part of their turn away from or, or toward uh, conservatism with a little C uh, and, and kind of being anti-government. So uh, that pushes them toward uh, groups like the American Liberty League and uh, and other groups that are kind of railing against big government uh, in the 1920s, 1930s. So one of their big ruptures comes with the, uh, the Franklin Roosevelt administration and particularly in a lot of the New Deal uh, legislation that comes through that they they didn't feel like uh, you know not necessarily that uh, like the Works Progress Administration was a bad thing but a lot of the restrictions on American business that came out of the New Deal were things that that were bad because they saw that as government overreach. I'll just sort of add an aside here. So uh, last year, Aaron actually came to Pennsylvania for a visit, and I took him up to Yingling. And went into the <laughs> caves and saw the brick wall that the government had built to to block off their beer storage area and everything. And yet, and yet somehow the the day prohibition was lifted, they had a they had a wagon of lager ready to go out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because uh, I mean I don't want to I don't want to delve too far into controversial territory here, but it was pretty funny during the whole Bud Light fiasco to be able to sit back and be like, is Youngling doing that? I don't think so. And why? <laughs> and I think it ties in well with what you're talking about with the with the DuPonts um, going more little C conservative uh, is there is a genuine suspicion of government from certain companies in this country that we just don't typically see. And it is interesting to see how differently they behave based on where their interests lie, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's uh, with 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 a company like Dupont. I mean, they realize that they're they're what makes them lucrative is the fact that they can sell stuff to a lot of people, and that they've got this this pretty diverse market or a pretty diverse uh, product line that serves a lot of markets. You know, so them getting into everything from paint, paints and varnishes, lubricants, fabric coatings, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, that you can. You can sell a lot of stuff to a lot of people, and having access to those markets is a big deal. And anything that restricts that is is something that's uh, or, or, or kind of restricts them getting into those markets or being able to approach these people to sell things is is not a good thing for their business model for how they operate. And uh, you, I think, you see companies that are a lot more narrowly focused. You know, they want that protection. You know, that they they do uh, align their interests, I think, a little more with the government because they see that as a way to protect uh, their their more narrow uh, scope of what they do and how they want to do it. If if that makes any sense, you know, I mean, so with with DuPont kind of being so big and broad based, you know, their their interests do lie with having that lie with the, the ability to have access to a wider group of people who want their stuff. 
and anything that would restrict that is not necessarily a good thing. So what are, uh, so DuPont, just to help me uh, follow, I mean, it's a big, it's a big name. You see it on a lot of things. Like what's their, what's their biggest things today? What are, what are their biggest like operations today? Today they do uh, a lot of uh, consumer electronics. They do uh, like composite materials. They recently, uh, in 2016, as part of a, of a staving off a hostile takeover bid, they merged with Dow. So uh, the Dow company out of Midland, Michigan, and uh, so now the, the official name is Dow Dupont, and they split back and out. It was in... also chemicals, right? Dow was a chemical company. Mm-hmm. So in, in 2016, around that time, uh, Dupont shed a lot of its traditional businesses. So they spun off their chemicals in. That's now a company called Chemours based out of Wilmington, Delaware. They also spun off their uh, paints and finishes. They spun off their hospitality division. So uh, the Hotel DuPont is no longer run by DuPont or owned by DuPont. That They, they spun that out in, in all this. So they, uh, and I think this is a, another example of them figuring out a way to survive. So they, they get rid of a lot of things, which are their, their core bits and traditional bits, to uh, merge with Dow and then split back out. Uh, so Dow took a lot of the agribusiness because that's, that's always been more of their thing in the agrochemical parts. DuPont took uh, some of the consumer electronics that were pulled in, the, the composites of the materials, things like that, that they had uh, that they had gotten into. They still have an R&D facility here in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, that they, they, they still do all sorts of stuff that I wouldn't say that there's any one thing DuPont does now so much as a portfolio of things. Now, I remember, Lucas, when we were having our conversation in person, you told me a fascinating uh, fun fact about all the stuff DuPont does related to uh, space and uh, the moon landing. So as Mm -hmm. a sort of illustration for Aaron, why don't you uh, lay that out for us again? So uh, if if you all don't know, the uh, moon suits, all the space suits that went to the moon were made here in Delaware at a place called uh, ILC, uh, ILC Dover. it's uh they worked with DuPont on all of the layers that went into the spacesuit. So twenty one the, the 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 suit that went to the moon in the Apollo program has twenty one layers. DuPont made materials for twenty of the twenty one layers. And that was a uh, something that, that DuPont was was pretty heavily involved in, that they didn't make the suits, but they worked with ILC Dover to uh to come up with uh, particularly after the Apollo one fire. That that was uh, where DuPont came into the mix because with, with the Apollo 1 disaster, they found that a lot of the materials and the clothing, um, whenever you have a spark in a pure oxygen environment, they burn rather fast. So how can you make materials that will go on people's bodies that won't immediately burn or melt? That way it gives them a little chance of survivability if they need to get out of, of a bad situation. So uh, DuPont also got involved with uh, like the wire coatings in the Apollo capsules. That way the wiring wouldn't burn up. If they happen to be a fire or something like that, but their their highly most highly touted contribution to the uh, space program was for the uh, twenty of the twenty one layers of the Apollo spacesuits. Interesting. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, are there any other uh, other like interesting, cool projects that they've that stand out in history? Well, Dupont. Uh... Gosh, I mean, where do you where do you even begin? That it's a company that uh, one of the things I love telling people is Dupont's the most famous company you've probably never really heard of, and there's not uh, much in your life from the clothes you wear to the food you eat 
to uh, the card you drive that doesn't have something to do with DuPont or something DuPont I actually made or still makes. And um, the, uh, the one of the more interesting things to me is the whole uh, getting in the nylon. Uh, because that's uh, that's something that uh, is it, still uh, this is something that was uh, developed in the the mid 1930s and it's something that still to this day is an important product and uh, because of just how usable it is how easy it is to to configure it reconfigure it make stuff out of it so like seat belts in your car or a lot of your clothes are either made from a nylon or a nylon derivative or uh, like a lot of uh, tubing in refrigerators I mean there's all sorts of things that that are made from nylon. And uh, a lot of that came. Um, the the reason why this all comes about is a their their flagship research and development facility here in Wilmington, which is called the Experimental Station. And that uh, Dupont is one of the uh, most prominent companies to invest in R and D for the sake of R and D. So the uh, Experimental Station was set up to to do abstract work. They realize that the work that's going on there is not something that's going to pay off immediately, and they're willing to invest in that. And so. Uh, Things like uh, nylon or stuff that they discovered accidentally. It wasn't something that they deliberately sought to figure out. They were just doing parallel research in synthetic fabrics and figured this thing out, you know, just kind of playing around. Uh, well, not playing around, you know, I kind of say that. That's how they themselves describe it in some cases is, you know, some of the research scientists playing around with polymers and figure this thing out or whatever chemistry it happens to be. But uh, the, some, the fact that they come up with some of the world's most ubiquitous products based on this abstract research and, and by uh, more of a, of a of an accidental process rather or not even or I don't know accidental is a bad way to put that I hate that I keep saying that but it's more of a it's not deliberate that they do it it's sort of uh, something that they fall into rather than something they deliberately set out to figure out you know and that's uh, that's that that's kind of one of the things that comes up over and over again for the company is getting into these products that become uh, game changers in a lot of ways um but isn't that that's so much of the sort of course of scientific and technological development has been not the result of specifically trying to make something but of just trying to investigate the properties of materials and learn more about how the natural world works i'm thinking particularly of like the real early days of science of people like you know roger bacon in the middle ages and there they wasn't so much that they had a specific goal in mind they were just really interested in the natural world of course for them that was a, a theological interest because they saw the natural world as a reflection of the creator and they wanted to just know how things work so roger bacon gets really into how does light work and you know ends up making a lot of advances in optics and lenses not because he you know sat down one day and thought man i want to make a lens but because he was curious about how do things operate in the natural world? And I think that's something that uh, is a very unique, you know, sort of uniquely human aspect is trying to just figure things out, not necessarily because there's something specific you want to make, but because you just want to know how things work. And a lot of times you end up finding some really useful stuff along the way. You know, it's interesting that uh, one of DuPont's uh, biggest saleable products in the 20th century was the concept of safety. That uh, they ended up having a whole division that would like train. You could bring them in, and they would train you in industrial safety, or like advise your business, advise you however you wanted to, to operate it. That 
safety is something that uh, if you've ever had any interaction with anybody who worked for DuPont, safety is the thing that they absolutely go nutty about, and rightfully so, because they started off in explosives and are dealing with incredibly caustic and dangerous chemicals throughout the uh, most of the 20th century. Uh, but that's something that has kind of surprised me in the bigger picture is is that how they uh, can turn processes into products. And uh, that that safety is one of the, the, the biggest parts of that, that uh, like out of the Manhattan Project, that they uh, they worked on the Manhattan Project and then later got back into uh, nuclear facilities in the Cold War. Um, but it's not the process of like refining plutonium that they've done well with. It's not making and DuPont made the first uh, production reactor in the United States. So nuclear reactors are something that DuPont came up with to be able to run on an industrial scale. Uh, but that's not the thing that they sell. It's like learning how to deal with these incredibly dangerous materials and, and how you mitigate risk and how you deal with safety, that that's the saleable product that really comes out of a lot of this work. Learning learning how to not use a screwdriver to hold two beryllium hemispheres apart over a plutonium core. Exactly. <laughs> what on earth are yeah. you referring to? <laughs> so before... um. Before we wrap up, um, I think Aaron and I were both interested in just hearing a little bit more about your work in particular and sort of the field of public history, since, you know, it's a it's sort of a niche that a lot of people aren't too familiar with. You know, they they know that these vague people called historians exist who like write books and probably work at a university. But as we sort of got into a little bit when, as Aaron mentioned, we talked to the the folks at the Peshtigo Fire Museum. There's a sort of whole nother world of it of people like yourself who are trying to sort of make that history available, not just in an academic setting, but to people who are interested and to show them the importance and the, you know, vibrant richness that's available to them. So I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about sort of your work in public history and the kind of things you do to just, you know, give people information they didn't have before. Sure. Public history is uh, kind of where the rubber meets the road with uh, people who visit museums, public sites, any kind of cultural resource institution sort of thing. So I have done a, a lot of stuff in uh, over 20 years being in this business that I, I started off uh, working for uh, a small uh, public history site, uh, a small living history museum in Western North Carolina. And uh, one of my instructors at Appalachian State University said, well, when you get into this, uh, be ready to do a little bit of everything. And uh, I didn't realize how right he was that I thought that I was had hit the big time by becoming a director of a small living history museum. But the reality is that I ended up doing a lot of carpentry, a lot of plumbing, a lot of cleaning up the puke when the fourth graders got off the bus after a two-hour ride, a lot of uh, researching for the interpretive process. So the people who actually talk to people, you know, I was doing the background research to help them understand what it was that they were talking about. You're literally interpreting the past. You know, so when you see people who are interpreters, that's that's what they're doing. You know, they're helping you, the visitor, understand what they're seeing in, in the past as we explain it. Uh, but then also a, a lot of maintenance work, a lot of all sorts of things. So that's uh, been quite a bit of what I've done in this business. So uh, I've ended up working, uh, doing uh, archival work, so collections processing. Whenever you uh, go to do research in an archive, you somebody has to take this stuff apart and put it back together again and make an inventory so you know what you're looking at and make it accessible. So I spent uh, quite a lot of time doing that uh, with uh, Appalachian State University, but then here at Hagley. And uh, where I've landed 
with Hagley is uh, back to doing a whole lot of a whole lot of things. So I do uh, training sessions for our interpretive staff. I do uh, background research. I do a lot of uh, like working on exhibitions, uh, interpretive planning. So uh, whenever we want to talk about something, I'm one of the people who helps come up how we talk about it, come up with how we talk about it and the background research that goes into it. But then also uh, quite a bit of public outreach. So I find myself uh, regionally uh, out talking about uh, things that are pertinent to Hagley. So about the origins of the DuPont family company, uh, a lot about American military history, about uh, the explosives industry, Delaware history. And I do this for uh, places like the Delaware Public Archives and for uh, historical societies throughout the state, uh, for uh, other stakeholders and groups uh, regionally. So it's... uh, a lot of kind of being everywhere all at once and having to know a whole lot about a whole lot of things that, uh, that that's, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I've got, I've got to say, I'm kind of, I'm kind of envious because uh, t- to my, uh, to my knowledge, two people who weren't on my committee have ever read my thesis. And one of those people was my brother. Uh, and the, the other one was um, someone at a university in Egypt. Uh, so yeah, the, the ability to really actually bring history to people is something I've got to say that as a, as a historian who unfortunately does not do public history, I'm, I'm pretty envious of. <laughs> it, it's a lot of uh, – when I talk to a lot of people out in the wider world, visitors here or, or outside of Hagley, uh, folks usually say, you know, I really hated history. And I say, okay, mm-hmm. so, you know, why why did you hate history? And often it comes down to, well, my high school history teacher, Coach X. And it's like, oh, you're killing me, Coach X. You know, that this that, that wasn't something that any emphasis was put on. So, you know, you make the, the, the coach become the the uh, the history teacher, you know, or it becomes with with history teachers a, a long uh, grocery list of names, dates, wars, and facts that mean nothing. So there's no context. There's, there's not any kind of connection to now. And that's the and to be fair to history teachers out there, I have met a lot of incredibly good ones who do go that extra mile to build context and help their students understand. And I had quite a few, and I'm I'm glad for the experience of of dealing with with great people and people who were weren't such good history teachers. But uh, where where we uh, in public history uh, have a, a pretty hard job is that you got to make this stuff interesting to people. I mean, because we are uh, competing with. Um, I mean, to get down to the economics of this, I mean, we're we're competing with uh, movie theaters and uh, with uh, with uh, restaurants, with breweries, with uh, all these places that are a lot more sexy than going to an historic site. So why should I go to an historic site? You know, so we've got to, to take the message out there and make it something fun and interesting and meaningful to people. And there's a lot of thought that goes into that. And it's and now um, you see, see now, Lucas, you're speaking our language because that's the <clears> whole reason we do the show is. I thought history was boring until I had one really good history teacher and I, it changed my life. It changed my life. It made me start this show. And, you know, as is my, as is my way, as George will know, um, I'm interested in expanding the conversation to a slightly more personal level. Perhaps the, I would just love to ask you why, why in big picture words, is it important to make history interesting to you. We need to understand where we came from if we want to know where we're going. Bingo. Yeah. That that's that to me is 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 kind of how this works and that there's a a, a lot about uh, who we are that that it's hard to put your finger on what it is. You know that that people 
have a sense of that connection, but they can't articulate it. So I think what we can help them do is articulate that, to, to give folks that connection, to help them build that connection. And uh, like I've, I've told a lot of people here in other places, you know, that if, if a visitor comes in, I don't care necessarily if they understand the history of DuPont from 1802 to 1981. If it makes them go home and do a little bit of research on their own, makes them go home and, and read a book or Google something or think about things in a more critical way, then then my job is complete. You know, that's what I'm here for, you know, is to make them think critically about the past, but then also to understand this business of, of who you are and, and where you came from and why that's important. You know, that we all have a good story. You know, we all come from somewhere. And understanding that I think can can give people a lot of a, a lot of power you know i think that it's empowerment to know how the past works and how it's meaningful to you now that you you can use that in some pretty meaningful ways to to move yourself forward you know whether it's starting a new business or you know better interaction with your family you know however however it comes i mean i feel like that that's a, a pretty a pretty important thing for us to do hmm. yeah i i I love all of that because that's pretty much how i feel about it is you you can understand the future by understanding the past and I've got a couple different lines I want to go with this. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but uh, you know, for example, Netflix just announced a Napoleon movie, and I look at that and I think, aha, how will this be twisted and contorted to create some kind of an agenda-seeking program? Uh, and how many people will watch this and think, I know everything I need to know about Napoleon now because Joaquin Phoenix said so? Um, you know, that kind of stuff hurts me because I know that. For the longest time, I was under the influence of pop culture history memes that help, that did not help me understand the world at all. It made me like almost physically dumber <laughs> at a certain level because you just believe this stupid stuff like, you know, uh, the stuff they teach in the public schools like. OK, so I just bought a book from an antique store uh, called Soviet Communist Propaganda in Education. It came out in 1946. It was written by a guy from this area and you read it. And the number one thing he's talking about is the assault of American history in 1946 um, by Soviet communist influencers, et cetera. And the memes he lays out about history are things that I just took for fact because of the era in which I grew up, uh, such as George Washington and the cherry tree being a total myth. Turns out that wasn't always a total myth. That was just part of our story. And it was eliminated and, and uh, approached with a reality lens. Uh, to destroy a sense of American identity. I didn't know this. And this this is kind of like, I'm not, not to be on a soapbox here, mm -hmm. but this is kind of what I'm talking about is like the assault of history and the destruction of it. It's like, yes, it can, it's being taught poorly. And I'm part of me feels like it's on purpose because like you said, a huge part of your identity is knowing where you came from. Um, so I, I just want to ask one more broad question and then we can wrap up because I know we've, we've gone over an hour here. But, uh, do you feel the same way that I do? Do you feel like history is like directly under attack for some reason? I feel like history is something that is is definitely misunderstood and in some cases yes under attack because I think that there are a lot of people in this world who understand the importance of it and it's something that's easy to manipulate. And one of the, the an eye opening things to me in my my own career is that you know history is not truth with a capital T, you know history is a, a, a kind of a conglomeration of perspectives and realities, and so uh, that 
and and I come to that by spending a lot of time with primary source documents. You know that you, uh, you know, you know about uh, you know people who um, five people watch a car wreck and everybody uh, talks about it in a different way, but they're all talking about the same thing. So to me, it's important to not just give one of those perspectives, but to try to dig into all of them and to get a comprehensive view of of why you would would necessarily think about it in some way how you how you would approach this problem and uh um so i've i've become a a big fan uh later on of uh the, the french writer bruno latour who uh talks about history in such a way as that it's not like this one single line that you you pull through time that you you have this kind of line and there's multiple lines that intersect it from from various ways Right. So if you take a snapshot of one particular spot, you're only looking at how things, people interact in that one particular spot. You're not following all these strands back out to see how do people get to that point or why do they give the perspective that they do? You know, somebody describing that car wreck, you know, where where some person will say, well, the reason why this wreck happened is because they're driving a crappy car. And another person would say, well, the reason this wreck happened is because it was a crappy driver. You know, what would make you say that? You know, what what leads you to that point? You know, that perhaps your uh, great grandfather served in World War Two on Okinawa and uh, absolutely hated everything that had to do in, with any anything having to do with Japan. And so therefore taught you that all Japanese cars are bad. And therefore, most of these car wrecks happen because, uh, you know, and it's kind of logical fallacy in a lot of ways. But understanding that perspective, I think, is important to uh, climbing into the heads of people who are, are uh, part of historical events, why they act the way they do, react the way they do. So part of understanding who you are is acknowledging the the biases you bring to the table. And bias is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, that it's something that, that you can acknowledge and use that to figure out why people are thinking about things that, 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 that the way they do. So this is kind of a long-winded way to say, I think in some cases, yeah, history is under attack because you – don't take the time to bring in some of these under, other perspectives and understand all of the, the, the train of events that lead you to this thing. And so if you don't take the time to think about all that, then this stuff doesn't make sense or it's easy to manipulate the uh, story you tell or the outcome you want. So there's a lot of uh, selective memory and selective amnesia, I think, in history. It's easy to manipulate. History is so incredibly easy to manipulate. And uh, and I think that that's the biggest danger, you know, that you don't push people to think critically about what they see mm. and why people say the things that they do. You know, so critical thinking, I think, is is one of the bigger points of the exercise, you know, to push people to think differently about what they see and the question, you know, don't just take it as, as hard fact. And I tell people here all the time that uh, in training sessions, like, don't just take my word for it, you know, come and take a look at the primary source documents. You know, the primary source documents are not debatable, but my interpretation of them is, and that's what moves the conversation forward. You know, that I am not the ultimate arbiter of truth. You know, I'm somebody who helps you understand what it is you're seeing, but also to help push you to think more critically about it and do your own research. You know, think for yourself. You know, come up with your come up with, with some things, you know, let's sit around and talk about it. So these multiple perspectives are are what moves the ball forward, I think. So it's us not agreeing on everything, you know, having a spirited debate, you know, not an outright, you know, knockdown slam argument kind of a thing, but 
you know, I, I feel like I've become a better historian by interacting with people who I don't necessarily agree with, but who push my perspective and make me think critically. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's that's one of the things that um, that I, I wish more people would do. And what I've tried to do uh, here in all public history places I've worked or places I volunteered uh, in just talking to people in a casual way at a bar. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, think critically about the world around you, you know, ask questions. Don't just take somebody's word for it. You know, no matter how good of a teacher you think you have, question it. You know, if they're a good teacher, they'll go with you down that path. They'll invite questions. Of course. Because, because if someone's trying to program you, they don't want questions. And if someone's trying to teach you, they love questions. It's, it's one I, of the most obvious tells. It, it, exactly. You know, I mean, if people want to engage you in debate about something, if they won't engage you in that discourse, then then that's where you know to get the heck out of there. You know, because you're someone is trying to manipulate you or somebody is... Um, you know, doesn't know what they're talking about, you know, that that's, that's, uh, I think one of the biggest telltale signs of all of this is it was encouraging discourse, encouraging you to, to think critically and to question. I think, uh, I, I don't know. I love this and I, I hate that it has to come to an end, but, uh, George, I'd like to invite you to take one last shot at Lucas, uh, before we close out. Oh, well, a shot sounds so, so aggressive. Um, I think I'll just sort of piggyback onto something, whether we've been talking about here, which was the sort of appreciating and understanding the different perspectives on things. And so in a way, uh, I sort of get it easy with that since I'm an ancient historian and we don't have the level of sort of primary source documents and, you know, hard proof about so many things um, to say what really happened. And so for me as an ancient historian, so much of what we're looking at, what we're examining isn't, you know, what happened in, you know, 396 BC, but, you know, what did people at whatever time we're looking at, what did they think happened? How did they, how did they incorporate their understanding of the past into who they were and into their vision for the future and in a way it's sort of easier with ancient history since you don't have the same amount of documentation of things and i think there's a huge misunderstanding like you were saying in history nowadays particularly in modern history when there's so much stuff that people think history is just about what happened it's almost like it's math it's about you just gotta keep going keep going over the equation until you get the right the right numbers and it sort of misses out on the human element of history which is about the people and about how did the people let the events as they perceived them shape who they were shape their views of the past and their aspirations for the future and i think that that's something that public history is really valuable for because as we as i mentioned it's public facing in a way and allows people to really engage and learn on a personal level in a way that unfortunately you know history courses often don't since history courses have you know exams and stuff and so so much of it does become reduced to just knowing the numbers and the dates and the names and whatnot that i think it's just, i think it's a great tragedy in education that history's been reduced to that when i'm when i'm teaching history courses i have a firm upper limit for a semester course that i will never ask you to know more than five dates all semester like there are a few dates that are just like at the founding of rome that are important enough you got to know but Outside of that, I'm a lot less concerned about if you know certain dates than if you know how certain 
events and trends came together to create a certain reality, um, both at the time and in the minds of the people involved. And I think public history is such a valuable, valuable thing because it's got sort of a, a shortcut into access into people since you're getting people who are generally there because they want to learn something and they want to understand something better. And they're not already going into it with the perspective of, I need to memorize all the dates I learned today. Mm-hmm. Well, like I, like I tell a lot of our interpreters here, you know, the people who come here are, are here because they want to be here. They're curious, you know, that they're, they're not being forced into it. You know, you're right. They're not uh, waiting for an exam. You know, you're not teaching the test, you know, they're here to, to kind of look around and then take it all in. You know, but they're also looking to you as the interpreter, as the expert. You know, you're the one who knows about this stuff. So, you know, they're not looking to talk with you about what you don't know. They want to know about what you do. And so that, to to me, is a a bit of a freeing thing because, you know, you can shape the discussion in a lot of ways, but you're also free to respond and be flexible. That uh, often, uh, if I set out to give a tour here, I never end up talking about the things I think I'm going to talk about because I end up responding to the visitors. You know, were uh, the staff members who I'm, I'm walking through, uh, like doing staff training. And we, we did a house tour recently uh, as part of staff training. And I didn't get to talk about anything that was in my punch list of stuff to talk about, in part because it was just being able to respond to them and help them understand better the, the things that were around them. You know, but that's that's I think you're, you're absolutely right with public history and that we are in a unique position to where people kind of come to us with a blank slate. You know, they come to us with their own understandings and their own perspective. Yeah. You know, but they don't necessarily expect you to really teach them anything. You know, they're just here to have a good time. You know, I mean, this is something nice to do on a sunny day, you know, and it's like, well, that's where we've got you because now we're going to get you and, you know, help you understand the past. <clears throat> and beknownst to you, you know, you're going to have a good time doing it, too. <laughs> that sounds just like our show. <laughs> this is great. Um, Lucas, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're really, really happy to have guests like you who care about this and take this seriously. Um, and who also have the knowledge that they want to spread and also the enthusiasm for history. Um, just we're, I don't know, like, uh, we, this is a good energy match. I'm really happy about this. I'd love to have you back if you're open to it. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, maybe, we'll absolutely have a, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have a, a more, uh, general discussion next time. Cause I just, I feel like anybody who's researching an aspect of history or interested in, um, like one particular uh section of history you cannot help but get that delicious context as you were saying um you have to know more than just stuff about dupont <laughs> and uh i think we'd like to talk about that sometime george absolutely that was though i do have to point out that now our aaron and i's different backgrounds are coming out since i'm a historian so i am very interested in content and specifics or as Aaron is a, Aaron is a propagandist. He's a, he's a media guy. So he's all about the, the meta narrative. <laughs> well, we didn't get as weird as we usually get. You have to hand me that. Huh. You, you kept, you kept it and you kept it rained in. I'm I didn't even say the moon landing was fake this time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, the way we usually end this show, Lucas, is I usually end it with a song. Uh, so I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. Do you think the DuPont family has a theme song? Oh goodness! Um, Everybody wants to rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> I think they would say that for other people, not necessarily about themselves. I think you're right. From what we've learned today, 
Oh goodness! If if they had a theme song, um, if I had to put like any any one sort of thing, it would probably be uh, Sousa's "Stars and Stripes Forever." Stars so, and Stripes Forever. So not necessarily a song, although there are words to uh, the the uh, the final bit to that. If you really want to dig into the uh, the vagaries of John Philip Sousa, that's perfect. Um. That's perfect. I've written it down. It's going to go at the end. It's going to be it's going to be great. Um so to the listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. Um Lucas, thank you for showing up on the show and and being such an awesome guest and George, of course, thank you for helping me uh cobble together an interview even though I I did like 10 minutes of research last night. I think we did good today, guys. I hope you feel the same. <laughs>